The claim that if wages grow, employment will shrink is as idiotic as claiming that if plants grow, animals will shrink. I mean, it's ludicrous. Of course, that's not how the world works. Today's episode is brought to you by Magoosh, online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. Now, it can be hard to find the time and money to prepare for standardized tests. Magoosh offers a better solution, affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere, on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. Magoosh's complete test prep starts at under $100 and they guarantee you'll improve your score or they'll give you your money back. Go to magoosh.com right now. That's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com and get 20% off with the code LEFT at checkout. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Laura Flanders Show, The Young Turks, and The Other Washington. They must have been high-fiving themselves at J.P. Morgan Chase's PR department, July 12th. Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, was given prime space on the New York Times op-ed page to declare that his bank was doing something about wage stagnation and income inequality by giving thousands of employees a raise. Quote, over the next three years, we will raise the minimum pay for 18,000 employees to between $12 and $16.50 an hour for full-time, part-time, and new employees, depending on geographic and market factors, close quote. And why? A pay increase, declares Diamond, is the right thing to do. Well, how nice of the country's putative paper of record to give a corporate overlord a chance to let us know he's a mensch. Chase is the largest bank in the country. It made $24 billion last year in after-tax income. And they don't have 18,000 employees. They have 241,000. So for each of its employees, the company makes about $99,000 in profit. In that light, the prospect of a $1.85 an hour raise for 7% of them over three years is less than prepossessing. As for inequality, Diamond himself made $27 million last year, of which Chase's lowest paid full-time employee makes 0.08%. After that raise, it will be 0.09%, assuming that Diamond doesn't get a raise of his own, which, well, we'll see. But here's the kicker. In New York City, where Chase is based and more than 10% of its employees work, the minimum wage will be not $12, but $15 in 2019, and many other places are following suit. So the changes that Diamond's crowing about, with an assist from the Times, will be largely legally mandated. Wendy's is saying that it is going to make fast food self-service by ordering kiosks to replace employees in all of its 6,000 restaurants in the second half of this year. They have cited minimum wage increases 
and a tight labor market. Wendy's franchises make up 90 percent of Wendy's stores and about 10 percent of Wendy's stores are uh, corporate owned. The 90 percent that are franchises are going to decide for themselves whether they replace employees with kiosks. It's interesting how I call them. I'm now realizing, Lewis, Wendy's stores rather than Wendy's restaurants. I sort of did it without thinking, but it really is a store that sells food like products. Yeah, uh, perhaps not really uh, a restaurant. You could say the same about most fast food experiences. But uh, but hey, then you've got the fast casual places that are very similar that have great food. Wendy's president Todd Penagor noted that some franchise locations have been raising prices already to offset wage hikes. All of a sudden, the supply siders went nuts saying, see, look, David, this is what happens when you increase the minimum wage. I don't deny that Wendy's is telling the truth insofar as increased minimum wages in California and in New York are putting some pressure, upward pressure on Wendy's prices. What I have a problem with, though, is the media framing that, hey, Increased minimum wages are leading to loss of jobs because now they're going to put in these kiosks. This technology has been in development for a long time. We've talked about it over the last several years. And at that point, even two years ago, when it was sampled and tested by other fast food chains, it had already been in development for a long time. They're not just waiting around Lewis. And now that a couple states have higher minimum wages, they say instantly, let's start replacing employees with kiosks. This is almost a way to soften the PR impact of it, right? You say, listen, uh, because government, state governments, federal government are increasing wages, we're reacting as the victims here by replacing employees with kiosks. If you thought that order taking at fast food restaurants was indefinitely going to be done by humans, were it not for a minimum wage increase, you're living in a fantasy world. This was coming. This has been coming for years. Totally, totally inevitable. And uh, yes, they had a great opportunity here. They capitalized on it. Um, yeah, I've, uh, their, their major concern, their primary concern is the bottom line, make more money. Automation means you make more money. Let's go even further. I mean, these jobs have been on every single list of highly automatable jobs for years. If anybody thought that as technology develops and we have driverless freight trucks on the road, robotic surgery, et cetera, that really contextualizes that this, this, this truly was inevitable. And as far as the minimum wage goes, $11 an hour right now is basically equal to the 1968 minimum wage, adjusting merely for inflation. It's very hard to argue that the minimum wage today should be lower. And if you think that the minimum wage today should be at least somewhat tied to productivity, which has gone up drastically, it's very hard to justify a, a low minimum wage today unless you really want to divorce yourself from history, facts, and economic data. Yeah, uh, well, that's usually what is uh, what Republicans do, especially the ones that say we should abolish the minimum wage. I suppose they want to live in China or or Indonesia or you name it. This is really a story not only about minimum wage and not only about technology, but it's a, a media reporting story. When you see the headlines that just say Wendy's replacing employees with kiosks because of increased minimum wages, if you just look at that and don't actually consider and, and think through what it is that's going on, you come away with a very distorted perspective of what's going on. Uh, you don't think that this will mean lower prices on, on burgers and shakes at Wendy's, do you? Well, you would imagine that when they can reduce labor costs, the prices would go down. But as we've seen in the airline industry, oil prices are up, ticket prices are up. 
oil prices are down, ticket prices stay the same and then just go up the next time that we have an increase in oil prices. Yeah, we've seen this. Uh, I, I can't think of any real significant um, examples. There probably are some, but I can't think of many where an industry says, now that we've been able to reduce this cost, we're going to reduce the prices for everybody. You see them just taking a higher profit. Of course, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Interesting uh, graphic uh, that is from the fightfor15.org site that popped up today on DU. Uh, Just for comparison, right? I mean, Bernie Sanders talks about being a democratic socialist. And when people say, you know, what does that mean? He says, "Go go visit Denmark and you'll see democratic socialism. And, you know, Denmark is a fine country. It's a small country, but it's, you know, they're doing fine there. And uh, this compared a Burger King worker in Denmark to a Burger King worker in the United States. Now, Burger King is profitable in Denmark, and they're profitable in the United States. The Burger King worker in Denmark makes $20 an hour. Burger King worker in the United States makes $9 an hour. The Burger King worker in Denmark gets five weeks paid vacation. The Burger King worker in the United States gets no paid vacation. Burger King worker in Denmark has a pension plan, a retirement plan. The Burger King worker in the United States has no pension plan. The Burger King worker in Denmark makes enough, 20 bucks an hour, that they can get by, that they can they can have a decent living. Burger King worker in the United States, they have to choose between buying food or clothes or medicine. You know I need that minimum wage just to get through. Just to get through. No, I need that minimum wage. Just to get through. Just to get through. You know she needs it. Something fading in her life. You know it ain't easy. All right, folks, are you ready? We are actually allowing an investor and entrepreneur to our cameras. Nick Hanauer is actually a lot more than a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur. He is somebody who is raising alarm bells everywhere from TED to Davos about the perils of inequality, not to your conscience, although that too, but to your pocketbook and to the sustainability of our world as we know it. Nick Hanna, welcome to the program. Glad to have you. you. We have a lot of grassroots activists (laughs) and people who are against people like you, so I I want to give you a chance to talk. Um, Defend myself. No, no. (laughs) Introduce yourself, let's put it that way. Give us a bit of background. Where'd you come from? Uh, um, Well, I I live in Seattle, and I grew up in a family business, and uh, a a bed pillow and 
bed pillow and down comforter manufacturing business and grew up in that business, still uh, own and help manage that business, but started starting other companies when I was very young and am now a, a basically I'm a technology entrepreneur and venture capitalist. Um, and you and were very genius lucky. to invest in a company yeah, that maybe some very people lucky heard of called have Amazon. A, yeah, I was very, very early interest in the internet. And as luck would have it, I uh, had a friend who had an early interest in the internet. His name was Jeff Bezos. And so... Um, and so I became the first non-family investor in that. And from that experience, made a lot of money, obviously. And from that experience, started starting other internet companies, including a company called Aquantive, which was an internet advertising company uh, that you may not have heard of, but we sold to Microsoft in 2007 for $6.5 billion, but dozens of others. I mean, I think I've helped with 35 companies. So fair like to that. say you have a lot of money. I do. You could be off, I don't know, vacationing in the Bahamas. Yep. Um, I do that sometimes. <laughs> but you don't only do that. No. You also have an organization called Civic Ventures. Yes. Tell us a bit about the campaign that you've uh, gotten involved in over the last few years. Well, I mean, Civic Ventures is that my political organization, and we try. You know, our slogan is disruptive innovation in the civic sphere. So I, so my business has been disruptive innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, and uh, and investment, and. Um, the same tools and strategies that you use to disrupt an existing industry work in the civic space. How so? Um, well, I mean, if you're clever, you can turn things upside down. And, um, you know, so what's important, I think, to recognize is that human prosperity is linked to innovation, right? Innovation is how we solve problems and improve living standards. But innovation always creates disruption because it creates change. So in a healthy society, the rate of civic innovation must match the rate of technological innovation. And how are we doing? It, well, uh, in Seattle, Washington, we're doing pretty well. Around the country, uh, we're not. And a lot of the problems that the society faces are, 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 can be thought of as the gap between technological innovation, mm -hmm. disruption, and change, so, and the pace at which we're adjusting to it. So give us an example. Um, well, I mean, the, the, you know, the minimum wage. So if the minimum wage uh, had tracked inflation, it would be 10 bucks. If it had tracked productivity gains, it would be $20. And what happened to the economy for good and bad reasons is that it became a service, that it became a service economy. It was a manufacturing economy with high wage jobs. It became a service economy with low wage jobs. And what's important for people to recognize is a barista at Starbucks, who gets paid $8 an hour, isn't less well-trained than an auto worker in prior years, doesn't create less value than an auto worker does. They're simply paid less because they have less bargaining uh, power. And that's a consequence of the changes in the economy. And so we have to make adjustments for that to sustain the economy, because if people don't have any money, then who will mm -hmm. capitalists like me Sell to, right? So the implications of that are enormous, and not just with respect to minimum wages. I mean, the transformation yeah. of the economy that you're talking about, yes. what else does it affect? Well, I mean, you know, the best way to understand what's happened is that corporate profits as a percent of GDP 30, 40 years ago were about 6% of GDP. Today, they're 12 to 13% of GDP. GDP is, one, is $17 trillion. So that's a trillion extra dollars. Mm in corporate profits. Wages used to be 52% of GDP, now they're 46. So six, so a trillion dollars that used to be profits, uh, I'm sorry, used to be wages are now profits. 
And that trillion dollars isn't profit because it needs to be or should be or has to be. It's profits because powerful people like me prefer it to be. <laughs> but profits used to be thought of as what you needed to gather yes. together so that people could make jobs, start yes. new businesses, hire more people, buy more widgets. And now buy they're more the machines. point of the corporation rather than an output of the corporation. And that shareholder capitalism ethic and the legal constructs that, ha that have buttressed that over time are super pernicious and are part of what's killing the economy, killing the middle class, and killing our democracy. And all of that has to shift, and pe but people have to recognize what's happened and start to fight against so it. So how do you shift it in the civic, in the political sphere, in the sense that we're in an election year where you have that typical fight um, between people who talk about fairness, people who talk about growth. And yeah. the growth folks, particularly on the Republican side, said the way you get growth is you allow profits to congregate, yes. you, you don't restrict business, you deregulate industry. Yes. That's how we have a future. That's right. Right. And, and those economic ideas, the neoclassical economic idea and the trickle-down economics policy framework that people derive from that turn out to be totally and completely wrong. Tax cuts don't lead to growth. Investments in the middle class do. So, so growth in a technological capitalist economy are the, are the consequence, is the consequence rather, of and of a feedback loop between increasing amounts of innovation and increasing amounts of demand, which means that um, the, the more people you include more robustly as consumers, workers, entrepreneurs, inventors in the economy, the better it goes. Mm -hmm. And what that means is a thriving middle class is the source of growth in a technological capitalist economy, not an effect of it, not a consequence of it, which means that raising the minimum wage isn't bad for capitalism, even though it may inconvenience a few capitalists in mm -hmm. particular, it's indispensable to capitalism. A thriving middle class is the source of growth in a technological capitalist economy, not a consequence of it. And once you see it that way, now you realize that a lot of our policies are upside down, right? I mean, the most pernicious thing about trickle-down economics is not the belief that if the rich get richer, that will be good for the economy. The most pernicious thing is believing, as so many people do, that if the poor get richer, that will be bad for the economy, which is literally what the Republicans are claiming, that we should eliminate the minimum wage and somehow this will be good for everybody. <laughs> it's like, it is, you know, the claim that if wages grow, employment will shrink is as idiotic as claiming that if plants grow, Animals will shrink. I mean, it's ludicrous. Of course, that's not how the world works. And yet, those ideas have been accepted by politicians and, and you know, a lot of neoclassical economists. So let's talk about another aspect of change that you've alluded to. And you say that, you know, for the good of the whole, a few individuals might need to, might need to take a hit right now. Our economy is also very based on the idea that the individual is the engine of ingenuity, innovation, etc. And yet you're suggesting we need to think about well, it's about shifting from a we voice to a, I mean, a me voice to a we voice. Yeah. How do we do that? No, I mean, I, I think both things can be true. So on the one hand, um, we need people to be super inventive, super aggressive, super risk-taking, all that stuff. And, I mean, innovation really is the source of how we solve problems and increase living standards. But in the absence of demand, there is no innovation, right? You can't you know, it's the sound of one hand clapping. If you have no, no one to make things for, then you, you actually don't have innovation, which is, why, um, which is why wages are so essential to innovators. Mm -hmm. and, 
And, you know, the truth is that if in the near term, some giant corporations make a little bit less at percentage of profits over the long term, in aggregate, we'll all make more money, including them as the size of the economy increases, right? It, it, look, if low wages equaled prosperity, then the lowest wage places on earth would be the most prosperous, but they're not. The highest wage places are. Why? Because that's the target rich opportunity. That's where, you know, Apple computer was started here because here is where the most people are to sell to, mm -hmm. right? That's how you can build the scale to build these products. And what right? about your take on the market and how it functions? Is it magic? Does it work efficiently? So market market economies aren't efficient at all. That's that's a misnomer. M market m a market is an evolutionary system, and there's nothing efficient about evolution. But what it is is super effective. Mm -hmm. You know that's what nature is. is an, it's an effective way to solve problems, and a dynamic market economy is mostly an economy of failure with these amazing things that pop out, work, and multiply, right? Apple computer is an example of a thing that succeeded and, and, and flourished. That diversity doesn't hinder growth, it supercharges mm -hmm. it because the more people who approach pro uh, problems differently, simultaneously, the faster it is that you get on top of those problems. And, and so the promise of market uh, economies, if they're well-managed, if we deliberately and purposefully include people with wages, education, infrastructure, uh, it provides opportunity for everybody to live up to their potential. And um, you'll have some inequality in something like that, but not radical and raging inequality. So what, what place <clears throat> is there in all of that for, for planning? What do you see? As so I don't think that there's any place in a, in a market economy for planning, but I do think there's a place in it for goals. So for instance, you can say to your, so it probably makes no sense to say our plan is to make that company uh, or that industry the answer to the alternative energy challenge mm -hmm. that we face. But it makes a huge amount of sense to say we have to find a way to transition from oil to alternatives. Mm -hmm. Here's a zillion dollars in incentives for every kind of alternative idea we can find to explore the possibilities and see what works. So you don't want to you don't want to choose winners, but you have to choose games. That strategy. You've painted in some of your speeches a fairly bleak scenario of what might happen if things yeah. we continue on the current course. Yes. Do you still feel that bleak? And what's that scenario? The thing about revolutions is that they come slowly and then suddenly, right? And so in 1980, the top 1% of Americans shared about 8% of income, and the bottom 50% of Americans shared about 18% of income. Today, the top 1% of Americans share about 22, 23, 24% of income. The bottom 50% of Americans now share about 12 or 11. So 300% increase, 50% decrease. Um, uh, at current course and speed, if you simply just assume that it will continue on in, in, on that path in another 30 years, uh, the top 1% of Americans will share about 35, 40% of income and the bottom about five or six. And it is impossible. It, I think it's just unrealistic to expect that that will unfold and not result in riots and revolution. I, I just, 
I just don't think the 95% of Americans who will be savaged by that trend are going to be like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I think they'll, I think they will go crazy. And look, the Republican primary is a sign of how crazy people are already becoming. And I think that that eventuality will be horrible for everybody, but particularly for people like me, <laughs> because people are going to be angry and they're going to look to blame people. And that is just something that we want to avoid. Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal per person, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And, of course, they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers and family-run farms. The best part about Blue Apron for me, personally, is that it gave me the chance to explore foods I never would have thought to prepare for myself uh, with the added feeling of accomplishment you get when the meal is actually served. You know, it's always surprising to look down at this beautiful plated meal and realize, hey, I just made that out of raw ingredients. Plus, cooking is a great way to build and maintain those family bonds by working together. So if Blue Apron makes it easier to get you excited about cooking again, then I say that's an investment that goes far beyond the food on the plate. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com best. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. McDonald's has discovered that when you pay workers a little bit more, they end up being happier. Mind-blowing, I know. And this is a result of them actually raising wages for at least some of their workers. In April, they announced uh, that they would raise the average hourly rate for workers at U.S. restaurants that they own to uh, $9.90 from $9.01 starting in July of last year, with average wages climbing above $10 per hour by the end of uh, 2016, which is something. It's not too uh, Bernie levels. It's not too fight for 15 levels, but it's something. The company also said it would allow those employees to earn up to five days of paid vacation every year following one year of employment. Jesus. What the fuck? Five days, dude. Maybe five they can days. earn five days after a year of backbreaking, grinding labor. Jesus. We have a fucked up country. We do. We do. But th- there's, a good, there's a good end to this, perhaps. Uh, the raise has affected only about 10% of workers. Uh, that's not really McDonald's fault, I guess. The vast majority of their uh, restaurants are franchised. I wonder if legally they could require franchisees to they pay can, higher. I'm not absolutely. sure that they, they could. They could do anything absolutely. they want. Well, that would be they something. can do anything to a franchisee. Um, yeah, so here's a quote from McDonald's U.S. president. Uh, it has done what we expected it to. 90-day turnover rates are down. Our survey scores are up. We have more staff in restaurants. So far, we're pleased with it. It was a significant investment, obviously, but it's working well. And uh, to give you context of why they're happy with it, perhaps... In October, McDonald's reported its first quarter of comparable sales gains in two years. The company built on that growth with a huge 5.7% increase in the following quarter. So that's the data leading up to today. So this is hilarious. So what the company is discovering is that we actually make more money if we treat the people who generate that money decently. 
That yeah. is so weird. You mean if we we don't treat them com- like complete animals and play them a substandard wage so they can't actually live or see a doctor when they get sick? So if we actually pay them a little more money, we'll, they'll do a better job and we'll all make more money? That is they don't. There's no class in that at Wharton Business School. Where's that <laughs> class that tells you to treat your employee better and you... Pfft. So they did a study one time. Uh, and so what they did was they gave all these employees extra stuff. Like they gave them an extra 15 minutes at lunch and then they gave them lunch and then they gave them a better <laughs> lunch, right? They paid yeah. for it and they did all these things for it. And they said, the company's doing well. We're sharing it with you. And the people, the employees were fucking happy and they worked harder and they made more yeah. money. And then here comes the twist. They started taking shit away. So then they started taking away their extra time at lunch and they started making them pay for their lunch food. Then they started just take that food away. They didn't provide anymore. And each time they took stuff away, workers output went up. Whoa, that's weird. Why did that happen? That happened because they had been treated so well by their company previously. They felt that if the company had to take something away, the company must have been hurting. Hmm. So they had to work extra hard to make sure their company could get back on their feet. That's how people think about their employer. People are too nice. That's how people think. think. So when you treat them with a little bit of humanity, they give it to you back in spades. Yeah. And and that's what's wrong with our corporate culture, because our corporate culture only talked about the quarterly profits. And you don't make a quarterly profit by investing long term in anything. Yeah. No, they want loyalty up, but they're not willing to give loyalty down. Right. Yeah. Basic violation well, I of mean, human like, you know, mm-hmm. fairness. And they found that you don't have to increase it all that much to see results. I mean, 990 is not, like, forget about that not even being Bernie Sanders' $15 an hour. That's not even Hillary Clinton's $12 an hour. Like, but that is an increase. It's something, it's more than 10%. And they saw results. And I, um, I, I've been trying to think, I mean, we, we, we joke, obviously, about how things at, at TYT in terms of pay is not always the best, uh, especially for a, a lot of the company. And uh, I've tried to think, I looked back over all the jobs that I've done over my life. And I started off when I was really young, at like 14, I was a busboy. And I did catering in the summers. I was a barista. I was a bartender. I was a waiter. I've only really had one sort of minimum wage job at a toy store. And I was so young, I wasn't supporting myself or anything. So generally, I've, uh, I've had service industry jobs, which suck. And they destroy you psychologically and emotionally. Um, but you get a little bit more money for mm-hmm. doing that sort of thing. When I try to imagine living here or when I was in Texas or even in Connecticut on a minimum wage job or okay. two minimum, I don't know how it's possible. I mean, even after the increase to 990, like I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do for transportation after my, my lease ends. How the fuck would you do anything? You would have to, unfortunately, buy an extremely cheap car that's probably on the brink of failure. And you're going mean, to spend more. You just go more... from financial crisis Dude, to financial expen- crisis. It's I... expensive being poor. Yeah. If you're poor, you're living in a neighborhood where the cost of average consumer goods, whether it's food, beer, whatever, they're way higher than the rest of town. Yeah. Your 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 ability to get credit, to lease a car, to do anything, it's much more expensive. To get a good yeah. well interest rate when you get credit. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. I remember Freakonomics showing uh, they did a comparison between uh, like uh, cheap uh, grocery stores in poor areas and more affluent uh, grocery stores, and things that aren't even really luxury foods are more expensive at the cheap place to give them an aura of being like a splurge item than the rich people just get to buy every day. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And look, uh, McDonald's, I'm going to give them some credit. They gave them a little bit of the raises. They gave them the ability to get five, do- uh, five days vacation 
per year, which I well, guess is not the standard in this industry. I'm not going to give them that much because that's still a ridiculously low amount. Um, but I think that what we're learning from McDonald's, what cities are learning as they raise their minimum wage, is that this helps the local economy. It helps morale, which pays itself off. This is the direction that we need to go in, and we need political leaders who are willing to push for this sort of progress. What we really need is to have the minimum wage tied to the economy. Cost of living. Cost yeah. of living. Because what, what, what you said is, oh, cities are now finding out that when you raise it, why are they just finding it out? We've had a minimum wage. We've raised it before. It's because it doesn't. Ha it happens in such long intervals that people yeah. have to be retaught that the minimum wage helps your economy. Yeah. When you raise the the uh, the wage of your workers, they spend that money. Well, uh, Aster Edelman, uh, who's the real Gordon Gecko, told this to the people on CNBC. It almost blew their minds when he said, "You know, when you give money to a worker, they spend a hundred percent of that money, or a hundred and twenty percent of that money." Which <laughs> exactly. how they pull that off, I'll never know. But he Thankfully also for said, credit. "But when you mm -hmm. give it to rich people, the upper one percent, they spend ten percent of that money." So that's the that stack. So then that money gets taken out of the economy. And when you give it to a worker that goes into the economy, it stimulates the economy. So this is a lesson we have to reteach everyone every 10 to 15 years, because that's how long it takes for them to raise the goddamn minimum wage instead of having it tied to the cost of living, which is what it should be doing. I work on a deep fryer at a fast food chain and my employers. But what do I get for my pain? A couple dollars is just pocket change. If I save my dough for a month or so, I could buy a can of Coke. It's a Walmart is the world's largest retailer with over 4,000 stores in the United States and over 11,000 worldwide. Walmart is often criticized for their business practices. And we've talked on the program before about how Walmart sort of creates their own customers by making it difficult for its own employees to shop anywhere else and making it particularly easy for them to shop at Walmart. And we received an email from a former Walmart employee and they shared insights on this issue from their personal experience working at Walmart. Our research into many of the topics discussed in the email turned up quite a bit of interesting evidence that suggests Walmart is not only creating customers from among their employees, they're also hugely benefiting from social welfare programs that their employees are entitled to by virtue of being underpaid. Let's start with one of the very obvious ways that Walmart creates customers from their employees. If you've ever been in a Walmart, you've no doubt seen that standard outfit that Walmart employees wear, the de facto uniform, blue or white shirts and khaki pants. One might reasonably assume that these outfits are distributed to employees for free, but Walmart employees or associates, as they're referred to within the company, are required to buy their own uniforms at Walmart. How much does Walmart make from selling these uniforms? 
The former employee who wrote us estimates at last count, Walmart employs 2.2 million people worldwide. Let's say the average investment is skewed to the lower end, say $75, a very conservative and fair assumption at $75 per employee. Walmart makes $165 million from the requiring of the purchase of these uniforms. While we don't have the numbers on how much Walmart employees pay for their uniforms internationally, making change at Walmart, which is an organization focused on improving conditions at Walmart, calculated that the company stands to make between 51 and $78 million in uniform sales to its employees in the U.S. alone. There are laws in place that prevent companies from forcing their employees to pay out of pocket for uniforms if the cost of said uniforms would drop the wages of those employees below the federal minimum of seven twenty five an hour. The lowest wage that Walmart pays is ten dollars an hour. If we assume that each employee spends seventy five dollars on uniforms every six months or so, that wage is reduced to nine ninety one. Legally, this isn't problematic for Walmart and it's still above the federal minimum wage. But as we know, it's nowhere near a living wage. And these are clothes that Walmart could provide to their employees for free at a tiny, tiny cost to them. But they choose not to. In fact, Walmart's owners, the Waltons, could buy three uniforms for every American employee with around only a week of their dividends from Walmart stock. Requiring low wage employees to purchase uniforms is an unnecessarily tight fisted move from a company that made more than 16 billion dollars in profits in 2015. But the policy is particularly harmful to new employees as they have to purchase their uniforms before they even start working and hence before they even receive their first paycheck. Now, Walmart claims that their average wage is 1338 an hour. This doesn't account, though, for part time employees. And additionally, the average supplied by Walmart includes store manager salaries, which artificially inflates the average significantly. For comparison, the lowest wage at a Costco store for employees is eleven fifty an hour, with the average being twenty one dollars an hour. Walmart ran a TV ad last year talking about wage increases. There are no medals won for earning a living. It's just what you do for family. But it's hard to build a future if you can't see past today. That's why Walmart is investing in the most important part of our company, our people. Because a raise in pay raises us all. The ad contains some questionable claims regarding so-called living wages and the Better Business Bureau actually notified the FTC that Walmart may have violated advertising regulations. However, officials at the FTC declined to investigate whether Walmart's claims constituted false advertising. Although Walmart has increased wages, they're offsetting this cost by cutting employee hours and even closing some locations, hardly a net win for Walmart workers. And as we mentioned, $10 an hour is not a living wage and many workers will struggle to get by. Let's discuss Walmart employees and food stamps. As a result of the low wages that they earn, many Walmart employees in the U.S. are on government assistance programs like food stamps. Interestingly enough, Walmart's employee discount doesn't apply to grocery items other than produce. 
Americans for Tax Fairness, which is a nonprofit focused on tax reform, estimates that American taxpayers pay $6.2 billion, with a B, dollars per year to subsidizing Walmart's low wages in the form of government assistance programs. Walmart even acknowledges that they make a significant amount of money from food stamps in a financial report discussing potential negative impacts to revenue. Quote, our business operations are subject to numerous risks, factors, and uncertainties domestically and internationally, which are outside our control. These factors include changes in the amount of payments made under the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Plan and other public assistance plans, changes in the eligibility requirements of public assistance plans. This basically is Walmart admitting that their bottom line is impacted when fewer people are using food stamps. This makes Walmart's low wages potentially even more sinister because they're in a position to ensure that their that their own employees need to use food stamps to get by. And where do those food stamps get spent at Walmart, where those same employees can buy everything except food at a slight discount? Walmart employees have also run food drives for fellow employees because many employees at their stores can't afford enough food. While it could certainly be argued that it's a good thing that some employees are looking out for each other, it's not their responsibility to provide food for their colleagues. Rather, it's Walmart's responsibility to pay a living wage. Raising wages at Walmart is easier said than done, however, particularly if you're thinking of organizing a union, although legally U.S. companies are not allowed to fire employees for trying to organize a union, Walmart has all but perfected suppressing unions. The employee that wrote into us talked about Walmart's anti-union culture, saying it was legend around Walmart that even a whisper of unionization would result in immediate termination. We were expressly forbidden from distributing any paper, pamphlets, notes of any kind for any reason. There was an ongoing story among employees that attempted unionization of all the Walmart butchers and meat workers resulted in the closure of all fresh meat preparation at Walmart. We looked into this and it turns that out that indeed in 2000, meat workers at a Texas Walmart did in fact vote to unionize. Almost immediately afterwards, Walmart switched to buying prepackaged meat, stopped cutting meat in stores, and they insisted that the switch had nothing whatsoever to do with the vote to unionize. But the timing is suspect to say the least. A leaked Walmart training showcases some of this insane anti-union rhetoric that Walmart uses to discourage workers from unionizing. Now, I think you know by now that our company prefers to have open and direct communication with our associates. We don't think that a labor union is necessary here. Here at Walmart, our associates are used to having a voice in their workplace. Our company has always supported an open door policy and we're used to having our voice heard for free. And where does Walmart stand on all of this? Our philosophy is simple. We are pro-associate. It's an absurd statement on Walmart's part to say that it's pro-associate when it takes stances that actively make things worse for its employees. An internal document distributed to store managers was also leaked entitled, quote, a manager's toolbox for remaining union free. Managers are instructed to gather detailed information on employee activities if they suspect that employees are organizing a union. For example, managers are supposed to figure out who attended union meetings and what was said at those meetings. Quote, how did we learn associates were attending union meetings? 
Who told management about the meetings? What did they say? What was management's response? Do we know who attended the meeting? Do we know how many associates attended the meeting? What has been the associates behavior since the meetings? That is from page 35 of this document. But managers are expressly prohibited from doing just that only a few pages later from page 41. You cannot spy on any union activities the associates may be involved in, such as attending union union meetings, nor can you have another person do this for you. Last year, Walmart temporarily closed five stores due to what it referred to as plumbing problems. However, workers at one of these stores located in Pico Rivera, California, alleged that the store was actually shut down as retaliation for them demanding better pay and better working conditions. Walmart has also conducted mass surveillance of its employees, particularly those suspected of wanting to organize. The retailer went so far as to hire Lockheed Martin, the defense contractor, to spy on its employees. Walmart has created a totally Orwellian system of anti-union propaganda and surveillance in order to prevent employees from organizing. And it has proven to be very, very effective from the company's perspective. Defense contractors aren't the only companies that partner with Walmart. However, the retailer has partnered with numerous financial industries in a sort of attempt to carve out a niche in the financial service industry. Walmart has tried to acquire a banking charter in the past, but the FDIC denied their request since they couldn't get a charter of their own. Walmart then partnered with Green Dot Bank. In fact, Walmart bought a 4% stake in Green Dot. That may not seem like much, but it's actually just below an important regulatory threshold beyond which Walmart would have been subject to far greater scrutiny by the SEC for their investment stake. Through Green Dot, Walmart offers various financial services, including prepaid gift cards and credit cards. And Green Dot advertises both its Walmart and non Walmart cards as not requiring credit checks and having no overdraft fees. Millions of Americans break free with Green Dot cards. No overdraft fees or credit card debt. It's the no hassle way to handle your money. Get yours now at GreenDot.com and at major retailers nationwide. The problem with these cards is that they have numerous hidden fees, including fees for balance inquiries on out of network ATMs. These hidden fees can very quickly add up, especially since the people targeted by these cards are overwhelmingly low income Americans without bank accounts. Now, the ATM network in question is the Money Pass network, which is a separate company, not directly affiliated with Walmart, but partnered with Green Dot since Green Dot doesn't have any physical branch locations. Walmart also attempted to start paying its employees through these prepaid gift cards, but the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau fortunately stopped them from doing so as employers are required by law to give workers the option of a normal paycheck, actual money they can spend anywhere in any form that they want. Now, if all of these financial connections weren't confusing enough, Walmart also partners with Wood Forest Bank, which operates branches in Walmart stores in certain states. Wood Forest Bank has also had issues with fees as they were involved in a class action lawsuit regarding excessive overdraft fees in 2010. So we have Walmart providing financial services through partnerships with various companies in a system far more complicated than what would be expected from a retailer. And on top of that, it's difficult to determine just how much money Walmart makes 
from offering these services. In their public SEC filings, Walmart groups all of its revenues from financial services under other, making it virtually impossible to know exactly how much those services are bringing in. While Walmart isn't operating a closed economy by definition, they are effectively operating something very close to one. Walmart is often held up as a sort of shining example of how effective supply side economics are. In reality, Walmart is heavily subsidized by the government through benefits that its workers receive as a result of being paid so poorly. Walmart is also built on the commons. Their inventory is delivered to stores on public roads, and those stores are provided with water and electricity from public utilities. They operate within the legal and judicial system, which is, of course, operated by the federal government. Walmart also creates an internal environment that generates business from its own employees, both overtly in the case of the uniforms workers are required to buy and implicitly, as we've seen with the establishment of banking options and attempts to replace paychecks with gift cards. Now, when Walmart employees do realize that their employment may not be organized in the way that's best for them, they face extremely harsh opposition to any sort of effort to organize unions. Walmart has, in essence, built a system reminiscent of the coal mine company store, where miners had no choice but to buy food and clothing from the store operated by their own company. 20 million people are fighting for scraps, and the government tells me that there's nothing in the back. Yeah, we're all sailing on a ship that's lost at sea, and we're taking too much water, now we're starting to sink. It's a brand new way, and it's an option for me. When the water's filling up, it's getting harder to breathe, and it's all going is uh, quite remarkable. This is a piece out of the Financial Times today. I was I was talking about how the UK is now engaging in the fastest increase in their minimum wage in the history of that country. But I missed the punchline. This is being done by a conservative government. David Cameron is in the UK what in the United States we would call a Republican president. And uh, they are, and, and this is, you know, this article in the Financial Times by uh, Sarah O'Connor, she says, uh, in response, Germany introduced its first ever minimum wage last year. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has called for minimum wage increases of 3% a year for the foreseeable future. And some U.S. cities such as Seattle are raising their wage floors to $15 an hour. Um, and then she she says, but the conservatives did not always feel this way about the minimum wage. Indeed, the party opposed the U.K.'s introduction of the policy in 1998, arguing it would destroy jobs. Mr. Bowles, this is one of the uh, conservative politicians in the U.K., a member of David Cameron's party. He says, we bring to it the zeal of converts, which uh, is pretty fascinating. In the UK, right now in the United States, a worker at McDonald's has to work 41 minutes in order to earn enough money to buy a Big Mac at the McDonald's at which they're working. Okay, 41 minutes. Now, that number is going to go down as we get closer to $15 an hour, but right now it's 41 minutes. 
in France, you uh, in thirty in Canada, a worker only has to work thirty three minutes to be able to afford a, a Big Mac, because Canada has a higher minimum wage functionally than we do. Uh, France twenty five minutes, Germany twenty five minutes, Netherlands twenty four minutes, Denmark sixteen minutes. That's you know four. It's it's almost a third. They make up you know three times more than workers in America do. But the UK right now it's twenty six minutes. It's going to go down to eighteen minutes with this increase in wages. That's pretty cool stuff. So the rest of the world is getting it that neoliberalism is 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 stupid and has failed. But the Republican Party in the United States is still pushing this stuff and pushing it hard. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, join the fight for a living wage. This weekend, thousands of low-wage workers will converge in Richmond, Virginia for the first-ever Fight for 15 convention. Choosing Richmond was a deliberate statement. As the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond represents the deep-seated racial injustice in our country's history, and convening there highlights the connections between economic justice, racial justice, and immigration justice. The weekend will end with a march on the monuments to the Confederacy. According to the National Employment Law Project, more than half of black workers and three in five Latinos earn less than $15 an hour. David Wilborn of the library staff at East Carolina University said it best, quote, Decades of attacks on working people who organized unions means that jobs that traditionally provided a path to economic security for families now no longer do. America's legacies of racism and corporate greed have always been intertwined, and because of those forces, we're all in the same boat now, unquote. And it's not just corporations that are paying below poverty-level wages. The U.S. government is the leading low-wage job creator, funding more poverty jobs than McDonald's and Walmart combined through contractors. 60% of federal contract workers are women, and 88% are women of color working contracted jobs in areas like food service, janitorial work, or landscaping. These workers, who make up 21 million Americans, are fighting for a model employer executive order, which would direct federal taxpayer dollars to companies that pay workers living wages and allow them to form unions. This summer, thanks to the hard-fought efforts of Bernie Sanders and his supporters, the call for this executive order was added to the Democratic Party platform. You can become a citizen co-sponsor of the Model Employer Executive Order by adding your name to the petition at goodjobsnation.org. Now, the term intersectionality has finally made its way into the broad progressive consciousness, and the fight for a living wage is just another example of why it's so important. When we recognize that humans do not exist in single-issue silos, and we join forces for common goals, we are stronger and we can win. Make fighting for a living wage part of your theory of change. Start getting involved by visiting fightfor15.org and goodjobsnation.org to find chapters, rallies, and volunteers 
volunteer opportunities near you, or get involved with organizations like The Next System Project at nextsystemproject.org, Jobs with Justice at jwj.org, and the National Employment Law Project at nelpaction.org. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. Leading up to this election, we want to give you the resources, knowledge, and inspiration to get involved and stay involved beyond November, because no matter who wins the presidency, as progressives, we always need to be prepared to fight for what is right. That is what keeps bending that arc of the moral universe towards justice. So if making sure those with a job can live above the poverty line is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about joining the fight for a living wage via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change I, I think $15 an hour could be a job killer for small businesses, and I, but I am supportive of raising the minimum wage. I think it's the right thing to do in Seattle, the right thing to do in the country. So again and again, we find that the media tends to mischaracterize this issue, and, and it's very obvious that something is going on here. So, so we brought in uh, Hannah Brooks Olson, who is our project manager here at Civic Ventures and a recovering journalist, to talk to some people and figure out what was going on. Hi, Hannah. Hi. So what'd you find? I talked to a few people, the first of which was Igor Volsky, uh, who's a friend of ours from Center for American Progress. And Igor spends a lot of his time monitoring the media and sort of paying attention to public opinion as well around these kinds of progressive issues. And I, I wanted to ask him... Not only why the media is sort of continues to believe that there's two sides to this story, but also what he wishes people were talking about more and how he wishes that this issue is being couched. My name is Igor Volsky. I'm the deputy director of the Center for American Progress Action Fund, where we, uh, in a broad coalition with partners, help with messaging and campaign support um, for uh, increasing the wage um, and ensuring that everybody is paid fairly. So many regular people still seem to believe uh, the adage that if you raise wages, you kill jobs. So I have two questions for you about this. First, is that demonstrably true? And if not, where did that idea come from and why do you think it's been so persistent? Well, it's actually demonstrably false. If you look at all of the times we've increased the minimum wage, about 22 separate times, there's really no correlation between uh, what opponents say, which is if you raise the wage, you're going to have job loss. In fact, you often see the opposite. You often see employment actually increasing. And the reason why, I think, is because one of the things that 
that traditional economic models don't account for is the purchasing power, the additional purchasing power that lower income workers have when they have more dollars in their pockets. Those dollars go straight into the economy. But we don't hear that. You're right. We don't hear that from the media a lot of the time. We certainly don't hear that from conservatives uh, on the national and, and state and local levels. And that's because, you know, we've had this campaign for years and years and years in this country that has led us to believe that the way you grow the economy is if you cut taxes for the very, very rich, if you eliminate business regulations that eventually – you know, some of that benefit will trickle down to everybody else. And we're now uh, finally coming to terms, I think, as a country uh, that that kind of model leaves uh, most of Americans behind. I mean, it's really astounding if you uh, kind of line up the statements that you heard beginning you know, in the 60s where we have a lot of these quotes and all the way to modern day to people like Paul Ryan and um, Marco Rubio and others. Um, it's really almost identical. It's as if they've been uh, kind of cribbing their notes from uh, from politicians uh, in years gone by. We've all lived through these minimum wage increases uh, and, you know, the sun's still rose every morning uh, and sat at night. Uh, and uh, these, again, these these great repercussions that we've been um, told about uh, just never really, never really came to pass. So it's interesting that Igor mentioned those 22 minimum wage increases uh, since 1938, because it so happens, Hannah, that you talked to an economist who looked exactly at that. I spoke with Dr. T. William Lester, who is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and he has just released a study with the National Employment Law Project where he looked explicitly at the 22 instances where the federal minimum wage has been increased and compared them to employment numbers in key indicator industries, including restaurants and hospitality and leisure. So what do they find? Well, the title of the study can tell you all that you need to know. The study's title is... Raise wages, kill jobs, question mark. Seven decades of historical data finds no correlation between minimum wage increases and unemployment, period. That sounds conclusive. T. William Lester. People call me Bill Lester. Assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at UNC Chapel Hill. So Nelp asked me to just pull basic jobs data for the longest time period we could to explore all federal minimum wage increases. The first one was where it was implemented was 1938. So we could look every time there was a federal minimum wage increase, what happened to these various indicators, starting from total jobs, total private sector jobs, and then drilling down to as detailed as we can with national data, retail, leisure and hospitality, and then restaurants. Um, one of the things we also looked at, I didn't have a chance to mention yet, was the number of small businesses. So Switching now to the annual indicators, we looked at how many restaurants there were, how many total small businesses there were in the U.S., how many small restaurants, how many small retailers there were. And similarly, we, we find most of that, that actually increases after a minimum wage increase rather than declines. So again, not making a strong causal claim, but saying it's unlikely that if the minimum wage increase really resulted in you know, the world falling apart, we'd expect these to go down. Um, or at least go down more than half the time, and they actually don't. So Nelk just asked me to, to sort of pull the data, 
line up the, the minimum wage increases and, and, and make these kind of broad calculations of the number of times that jobs went up in a year, the number of jobs went down in a year. If you believe the claim, or if you were just agnostic about it, that the minimum wage you know, might kill jobs or might not kill jobs, um, you'd expect it to be kind of just a random event, like flipping a coin, right? So if we think we don't know, we're going to just look at the data and see what happens. Every time there was a federal minimum wage increase going back to 1939, the present day, what happened to jobs one year later? So if we do that, just looking at total employment, total jobs in the economy, um, there were 22 events that we could study, 22 times the federal minimum wage changed. Um, well, 68% of the time, there was actually an increase in jobs, whereas 31% there was a decrease. And so, okay, if it's a fair coin, or it doesn't look like a very fair coin, but it's actually biased in the direction that would not confirm that claim that minimum wage always, under any circumstances, kills jobs. So it's not supporting that, that idea. When you look at the industry that would be perhaps more affected than overall total employment, this leisure and hospitality sector, this broad sector that I'm talking about, the numbers are actually 81% of the time we see a positive change in jobs compared to 18% where we see a negative change in jobs. So even if this was a fair coin, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not picking that up. We're actually showing that it has uh, more often the preponderance of the events that we've seen result in a positive uh, change. And so I'm not talking about anything causal here, like there's a causal relationship, but if you believe there was a causal relationship that it was negative, it wouldn't support your argument. We just heard clips featuring counterspin, poking holes in Chase Bank's PR stunt of giving a meager raise to some of its workers. The David Pakman show poked holes in the idea that minimum wage hikes are truly to blame for fast food stores automating some of their workers out of a job. Tom Hartman poked holes in the idea that fast food restaurants can't afford to pay employees a living wage by pointing out that they do just that in Denmark. Laura Flanders interviewed Nick Hanauer about recognizing that a vibrant middle class is a vital input rather than an output from a healthy economy. The Young Turks discussed some of the psychological aspects of the relationship between employer and employee and the huge benefits of treating people well. David Pakman broke down many of the ways Walmart leeches off of the government and squeezes their own employees. Tom Hartman pointed out that even the conservative government in the UK has started to get it on the benefits of raising the minimum wage. And finally, we just heard a breakdown from The Other Washington on why everything you've heard about higher wages killing jobs is just plain wrong. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, in lieu of voicemails, I'm just going to keep talking for a bit. So, of course, I want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And finally, thanks to Magoosh 
Magoosh for sponsoring today's episode. Magoosh's online test prep is the easiest way to prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, or Praxis. Magoosh offers top quality lesson videos and practice questions at an affordable price. Go to magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now to get 20% off with code LEFT at checkout. And now, finally, uh, I'll do a quick update on the fundraiser, of course, and then I want to tell you a story about a bike ride I went on yesterday. So the fundraiser is still going well. Uh, my brother Sean is in the final stretches uh, of reaching his goal. He's down to just $500 left. Uh, you guys have been amazing chipping in on, on his page, helping get our best of the left team goal all the way uh, to the end. So we have about two weeks remaining for the summer fundraiser. So if you want to do the climate ride and uh, membership deal and get a free t-shirt, that's ending in two weeks. We are up to 117 total donors. So of course, thanks to Kathleen, Dwayne, Michael, Abdul, Amy, and three anonymous donors. Uh, I'm, I still have the goal. I would love to get a total of 200 donors in there. So with only $500 left to raise, you know, the vast majority of you could be $5 donors. If you want to hop on there, chip in five bucks, if that's, if that's what you can do, that's what you can do, but you still get your name added to the list, getting us to that total of 200 people. That's what I would love to see happen. If you can do more than five bucks, do more than five bucks because it's all for a good cause. Okay, and now, like I said, I want to tell you about this bike ride that I went on. It was an interesting ride. It was hot. I went longer than I had in, in quite a while. And so I don't know if it was the heat or the exertion or, or both, but I had some interesting thoughts and, and also an interesting conversation. And uh, and it all ended up being sort of a postscript to the comments that I put out on the previous episode. And that, basically what I was saying was in response to the anonymous throngs of uh, Bernie or Bust voters who say, I'm going to vote Bernie or Bust, but you can't blame me for the outcome of the election. No matter how it goes, you can't blame me. And I see that as just a blatant contradiction in understanding uh, based on how democracy works. I think if you are eligible to vote and you either uh, take part in the vote or you don't take part in the vote, you're still having some influence. Uh, not taking an action is also an action. So I, I see that as a contradiction. Don't get me wrong. I understand their argument uh, and I just disagree with it. Uh, what, what they say is you can't blame us. You have to blame the politician. And I think, I guess, sort of, but politicians can't vote on your behalf and they also can't perform mind control. So if you're a voter and you have the ability of autonomous thought and free will, then your vote is pretty much up to you. And the outcome of the election is based on the collective actions of everyone who votes and everyone who doesn't vote. That's how it works. So I, I took this thought during my ride when I was very hot and exerting myself and had this sort of Zen thought about applying the same concept to climate change. That's what I really want to tell you about. And I, th I think it's even, I think it fits nicer and is even more beautiful when applied to climate change. Because 
what people will say a lot of times is, hey, like if climate change gets out of control, it won't it won't be my fault. It won't be my actions that made it happen. So they can absolve themselves that way. Or politicians will say, hey, it won't even be our country's fault because what about China and India? Uh, it'll be their fault. And I say, I don't even understand the purpose of that blame game going around except trying to absolve yourself when it doesn't matter if you're absolved or not because the result is still the result. What is much clearer is to take that step back again and say, if climate change goes way out of control, we end up with CO2 levels you know, dangerously high, uh, our average temperatures are several degrees above what we have been used to for the entire evolution of the human species, if that's what we end up with, it will be not because of American politicians or Chinese coal mines or anything else. It'll be because humanity as a whole failed to keep our greenhouse gas emissions below a safe level. That's it. It's just not more complicated than that. So as I was having that thought, I also, during the ride, had a listener contact me on Twitter and tell me that I was wrong about my commentary about the Bernie Bus people and how the vote works. And I thought, well, that's absurd. How could I possibly be wrong? I'm just stating pure and obvious facts. And what I realized only two days later, like I said, I was hot and I was exerting myself. I, I was probably too tired to be uh, trying to have a debate on Twitter. So it didn't go very well. But what I realized a couple days later is, oh, they weren't saying I was wrong because it's true that Bernie or Bus people won't be to blame. What they thought I was saying was that no one is to blame. And in a yin and yang sort of way, I am saying that no one's to blame, but at the same time, I'm saying that people are to blame for their actions. And similarly, it is vitally important to understand who's to blame, understand where the weak spots are so you can work on those. And again, at the same time, it doesn't matter who's to blame because the results are the results no matter how we got there. Honestly, I found it a little bit mind warping and, and I, th I think it might be a little zen and a little hard to wrap your mind around, uh, but I enjoyed it and uh, I came up with that during my ride and I thought, I, maybe I'm uh, too hot and haven't had enough water or food and I'm hallucinating this or maybe it makes sense, but now, you know, a day or so later, it still, it still sounds like it makes sense to me, so I thought I'd tell you about it. Keep the comments coming in, preferably on something else. I would love to hear anyone's comments on, hey, what do you think about uh, labor and the minimum wage <laughs> for a starter? Uh, yeah, I would love to get away from the um, from the election conversation. So let me know your thoughts on that or anything else. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, 
itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing we can't see past